good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to everyone. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Matt Rajansky. I'm director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute, and I'm uh, thrilled to be able to bring you the launch this morning for our joint report with our wonderful partners in the U.S.-Israel Working Group uh, of the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya, with whom we've been working for several years, uh, have just developed a wonderful uh, in-depth, uh, trusting working relationship, a great example of what can be done uh, through track two engagement. This is, of course, titled Russia in the Middle East, National Security Challenges for the United States and Israel in the Biden Era. Um, you can find the complete report on our website uh, on the very same event page where you're watching today's discussion. Um, and as always, I want to remind you, you can stay up to date on our upcoming events and our publications on the website. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Kennan Institute and check out our podcasts, Kennan X and The Russia File, as well as our blogs, The Russia File and Focus Ukraine. I now have the great privilege for the first time uh, to introduce my boss, Ambassador Mark Green, uh, who will introduce the event uh, and then hand it over to Susan Glasser, our wonderful moderator this morning. Um, Ambassador Green is, of course, president, director and CEO of the Wilson Center. But before that, he headed the McCain Institute. Uh, and the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. Uh, prior to that, he was president of the International Republican Institute, IRI, uh, president and CEO of the Initiative for Global Development, and senior director at the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. He has served as U.S. ambassador to Tanzania, and prior to that, four terms in the U.S. House of Representatives, representing Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District. Uh, all of this incredible leadership service has prompted a dilemma for those of us at the Wilson Center, which, uh, Mark, I hope I won't embarrass you by revealing a question asked at our recent Wilson Town Hall meeting. What do we call you, ambassador, congressman, administrator, president? Um, and, and Mark simply said, call me Mark. And I think that that speaks volumes. I'm very grateful to have you here this morning. The floor is yours. Uh, Matt, thank you for that kind introduction. Yeah, I'm sometimes uh, asked what to be called in terms of title. I haven't wanted to be called congressman for a very long time, let me put it that way. Uh, so welcome everyone to the Wilson Center, where we strive to tackle global issues through independent research, open dialogue, and actionable ideas. Today's event and the cutting-edge report around which it is centered is really a great example of how we approach our congressional mandate. We're harnessing the strength of our regional institutes, in this case, the Kennan Institute, so capably led by Matt Rajansky, a widely recognized authority on Russia and Eurasia, and our Middle East program, chaired by Jim Jeffrey, former ambassador to Iraq, Turkey, special envoy to the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS. In Jim's case, the list goes on and on. We're also collaborating with our friends at the Institute for Policy and Strategy at the Interdisciplinary Center, Herzliya, including Major General Amos Gilead, who joins us today. We're about to hear from members of the U.S.-Israel Working Group on Russia and the Middle East, a partnership that has convened leading experts from the Wilson Center and the Institute for Policy and Strategy for several years. The group has met regularly, both in Washington and in Herzliya, to discuss topics related to cybersecurity and information warfare, global power competition, and Russia's approach to various countries in the region. This is their second such report, examining the potential challenges that Russia poses in the Middle East. I think we'd all agree that this report is especially timely with US-Russia relations seeming to worsen 
by the day. Russia seemed determined to extend its influence in places like Iran, Libya, Iraq, and Turkey. It stepped in to support Assad's regime in Syria, and it has established new bases in the region and sold advanced weapon systems. With the Abraham Accords in place and more countries normalizing relations with Israel, there are new opportunities to challenge authoritarian aggression. As we'll hear shortly, this report from the US-Israel Working Group recommends that both countries elevate Russia to a strategic priority in their bilateral relationship, and that they work together to mitigate Russian influence, especially in the cyber and technology domains. Again, a timely report produced through collaboration across the Wilson Center and with our friends, like our colleagues at the center in Herzliya. I'll now turn it over to our moderator, Susan Glasser, to offer additional introductions and to lead what I'm sure will be an excellent conversation. Susan is a staff writer at The New Yorker, founder of the award-winning political magazine, and has previously served as editor-in-chief at Foreign Policy, which won three national magazine awards, among other honors, during her tenure. She is a longtime and close friend to the Wilson Center. Susan, thank you for doing this today, and the floor is all yours. Well, thank you so much, Mark, and congratulations on the new gig. I, I'm happy to get in on the ground floor of uh, uh, this latest incarnation, and especially delighted to be with everyone today to moderate this conversation on this new report on Russia in the Middle East, uh, largely because it's such an all-star cast and because I wanted to hear what they have to say, and that usually is the very best uh, uh, reason I can think of uh, to engage with something like this. And especially right now, I think Mark is right to frame this conversation around both the timeliness uh, and it, the real sort of unanswered strategic questions surrounding uh, the idea of how both the United States and Israel will deal with the Russia factor in their relationships. And I, I love this, this joint venture. We're gonna hear from representatives uh, of both the US and Washington perspective and the Israeli perspective. And I think that's particularly timely. Hopefully we can also find out uh, what's happening with Israel and whether there's gonna be a new government anytime soon, which certainly uh, will factor into answering some of the questions posed by this report. But let me just say to those of you who haven't had a chance to read it, of course, you can find the complete report on the Kennan Institute's uh, website. I hope you look at it. I, I found it to be a real contribution. In particular, uh, this question of how to think about Russia and its renewed engagement in the Middle East since 2015, its intervention in the Syrian war, and perhaps the most provocative takeaway for me, I'm sure we'll talk about it more, really has to do with the question of, you know, to what extent has uh, Russia's intervention in Syria dominated ways of thinking about its involvement in the Middle East. And you know, for Israel and for other actors in the region, is it time to think about Russia more broadly and not just around the specific questions related to its, its on the ground presence in Syria? So we're gonna begin, uh, in fact, uh, with one of uh, you know, the leaders of this effort, uh, General Amos Gilead, who of course is leading and is the executive director of the Institute for Policy and Strategy 
uh, and the chairman of the annual Herzliya Conference. Uh, before he came to the job in 2017, General Gilead led a distinguished career, of course, for more than three decades in the IDF and in the Israeli Defense Establishment. And uh, in his final position, he was the director of policy and political military affairs at the Ministry of Defense. And of course, that means he's had a central role in establishing uh, Israel's strategy on this in a wide range of matters. So I'm delighted to turn over the conversation to start with him and to start to answer some of these questions. Uh, take it away, sir. Thank you. Okay. 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 Got it. I Thanks. hope it's not a cyber warfare by the Russians. <laughs> so you explained the whole situation already, right? And now, <laughs> now we'll take the question. No, it's top secret. Now I can uh, declassify it. <clears throat> I'm very happy to continue our cooperation that is unique. For us, Russia, and thank you all of you. Thank, uh, thank you very much, our staff, uh, Colonel Udi, uh, MK Xenia, all our colleagues in US, I don't want to repeat all the names that I know so well, and some of them I did have the privilege to work with. For us, Russia represents dramatic uh, strategic goal, and it's very, very delicate issue. On one hand, Russia belongs to the hostile camp against Israel. On the other hand, we need tolerance, at least by Russia, to be able to focus on the main challenge of Israel, that's Iran. Iran has two dimensions of threat, the nuclear and the regional. The regional mainly is Syria. In Syria, we need to do, allegedly, we need to do our best to diminish the presence of Iran and the threat by Iran. Otherwise, we will face very soon two fronts of a unique military terror threat from both fronts. So we have taken decision, allegedly, we need to say all the time, to cope with the Iranians and their proxies, the Syrians, not vice versa. Syria is like sovereign country, but empty suit. And the Iranians are determined to build second front, and we are determined to prevent it. So it's continuous war. And the Russian uh, presence in, United, in uh, Syria, the Republic of Syria, it's very important. We need their tolerance to have free hand against the Iranians and against the Syrians that are cooperating from them on frequent uh, basis. So that's why it has become so complicated. We, we know that for sure, based on long experience from Israeli perspective, that uh, Russia uh, is cooperating, considering Iran a strategic partner. That means a lot, and we will discuss it, discuss it later on. However, uh, on the other hand, we need the tolerance, as I've said, to prevent, to preempt the urgent threat by the Iranians. Now, the balance is mixed. On the operational uh, side, we do have success, we are successful in preventing. On the other hand, strategically, we are not so successful because the Iranians are determined to continue to build their presence. So the only option, real option we do have is the military. Vis-a-vis -vis the nuclear, it's different story. We cannot rely on the Russian support. They will exhaust their interest uh, to support uh, Iran. So we need to discuss Russia in Israel. It's, it's great strategic, a challenge, 
And that's why we are analyzing it uh, with, uh, jo as a joint venture with Kenan uh, <clears throat> Institute and Wilson Center in order to understand and to be able to share our views and recommendations, or like it said in uh, the document takeaways, we need to understand the regional perspective, but not less important, the global one. If we understand the global, it will enable us to understand and to navigate in stormy waters vis-a-vis -vis Russia. So I would like to wish you a fruitful uh, discussion. I would like to, again to take the opportunity to thank you very much for this joint venture that is continuing for long, for long years, uh, relatively. To thank Matt and all the staff, and of course, my friend Jeffrey. That any time I see him, I'm happy. It reminds me good times. One of the best ambassadors I've seen, and Mr. Of course, Green. That uh, at least with the organization he headed, I used to work. So thank you very much, and I look forward to fruitful discussion and dialogue. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, uh, General Gilead. I think uh, there's a lot of questions that we all have today, so we'll get right into it. We're going to hear next, uh, in fact, from Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, who you mentioned uh, is not only on the working group and now the head of the Wilson Center's Middle East program, but previously served uh, uh, both as a special envoy uh, uh, for Syria and for the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS. He, uh, of course, has experience in the Middle East, Turkey, Germany, the Balkans, and served as U.S. ambassador both to Iraq and to Turkey. Uh, ambassador Jeffrey, we're delighted that you're joining us today, especially because I think this question of how much uh, Russia's engagement in Syria has come to dominate uh, Israel's thinking around it versus uh, uh, Russia's broader aspirations and goals in the region. To me, that is a key uh, question for us and in the report, I think a key uh, discussion point. So we're looking forward to what you have to say to us today as well. Uh, Ambassador Jeffrey, the floor is yours. Uh, I'm not gonna be able to do this uh, with the video. Let me just uh, uh, give my remarks, okay? That's great. Yeah, and then we'll we'll come back. Uh, there'll be some time for you. Yeah, yeah if, I, if I can uh, get back on. Okay, okay, first of all, what the report underlined and what I, from my own experiences, would like to stress is that um, Syria is both a specific example of Russia exercising its military and diplomatic clout in a uh, alliance of convenience with Iran uh, to the detriment of Israel and other countries around the perimeter and the region generally. But more importantly, and this is what the uh, underlying report that we worked on with uh, Amos and others uh, makes clear, is that Russia has an overall plan. It is to undermine the US-led collective security system in the region, Syria, and to a lesser extent, Libya, are Russian actions on the ground to that end. But it is packaged in a theoretical uh, formula that uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, in his recent trip to the Gulf, uh, laid out for a security and cooperation uh, arrangement uh, in the region where Russia would be playing a major role uh, as both the uh, ally of Iran and a partner of sorts with the Arab states, Israel and Turkey, with some vague role for the United States. This is a major threat, not only to the U.S. position in the region, but also to countries such as Israel. Uh, Iran is a difficult target to deal with. Uh, as the Israelis and others know, but Iran allied with Russia uh, is extremely difficult unless you have the United States 
uh, fully integrated into the responses of the countries in the region. We've tried to do that in Syria with limited success. Uh, the key point here is that the underlying system is being threatened. The Biden administration's intelligence community has just come out with a threat assessment, which uh, essentially uh, adopts the uh, conclusions that we made in our report, although not with as much detail or I think as much uh, 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 policy orientation, but still the intelligence community stresses that the entire uh, uh, security system in the Middle East is being challenged by the Russians. Uh, the underlying point here is that the uh, Biden administration has not yet uh, develop an overall policy to deal with Russia in the region. It has a good policy towards containing and deterring Russia in Europe, in cyber, on the military front, and in, in uh, engagement in uh, our internal affairs. Uh, so far, so good. In the Middle East, it does not have an overarching policy. Other than a few general terms, it does not have an overarching policy towards Iran beyond getting back into the JCPOA. Until it works out and puts in place such a strategy, uh, we're going to be adrift in the region. Trust me, the Russians are not adrift. They know what they're doing. They think they're making progress. They are a real threat. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador Jeffrey. We'll, we'll come back to you and hope to uh, see you on the next go round. Um, next, we're gonna hear from uh, a key driver of this report uh, and also someone from in the region. Um, uh, Colonel Udi Eventhal is a senior researcher at the Institute for Policy and Strategy, Herzliya, and uh, uh, is, of course, a veteran for 25 years. Uh, in fact, he served as head of the strategic planning unit uh, of the political military bureau of the Israeli Minister of Defense. He also served at one point as assistant for intelligence to the military secretary of the prime minister and has served here in Washington uh, at the embassy as the intelligence attache. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing from him on Russia's influence in the Middle East today and where it stands vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. role in the region. I think that uh, Ambassador Jeffrey has offered an important point around the question of uh, you know, is there a broad understanding right now of how uh, Russian aspirations extend beyond the current Syria conflict? So, Colonel Eventhal, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's all yours. Uh, it's good to be here. Thank you, Susan. Uh, good to be among uh, partners and colleagues for the last couple of years. Uh, so I would like, first of all, to thank all my American colleagues and Israelis one, uh, for a wonderful relationship and uh, also productive. Um, concerning the question of Russia uh, in the Middle East, I think uh, the, the, this report is, is, uh, is, is picturing an interesting, uh, an interesting uh, picture of, of the situation. Uh, I think it refutes, this report refutes uh, some perception that is held by many in the Middle East, that Russia is the new uh, is the new dominant power, uh, great power in the region, replacing the United States, which is phasing out. Um, I think the report uh, uh, is, is showing that this does, this, this does not reflect the reality, and the reality is more complex. Uh, we, in the report, we are different, uh, the report differentiates uh, between uh, nuisance value, Russian nuisance value, and long-lasting uh, capabilities, influence, and power uh, of Russia in the Middle East. Um, of course, when it comes to nuisance value, uh, 
Russia has the ability to upset, to harm, and to damage uh, both U.S. strategic uh, interest and Israeli strategic interest, especially Israeli strategic interest. First of all, they are uh, supporting, the Russians are supporting uh, Iran on the nuclear uh, field, on the nuclear file, the negotiation in, in Vienna, etc. Uh, they are uh, they are supporting uh, uh, they are supporting the Iranians uh, the Iranian entrenchment in Syria and they are all at, at, and at the same time they are threatening uh, Israel's uh, freedom of operation in order to prevent and thwart such uh, entrenchment. Um, of course, Russia is introducing into the Middle East some. Uh, significant and state-of-the-art uh, weapon systems uh, that can upset the balance of power in the region and they don't have really uh, end-user control, the Russians. So uh, Israel, from the Israeli point of view, uh, we are not surprised when uh, during the second Lebanon war, some uh, cornet missiles were uh, shot against uh, IDF soldiers fighting Hezbollah. Uh, and of course, they give legitimacy to terror organizations such, such as Hamas and Hezbollah that they host sometimes uh, in, in, the, in uh, Moscow. Uh, Russia is selling uh, nuclear uh, energy and reactors uh, to, the, to the region, again, without, without significant and adequate controls. And of course, it was mentioned Russia is a technological threat, a cyber threat, and I have news for you, they don't only meddle with US elections and uh, uh, also probably with, they, they interfere with Israeli elections. And as you know, there is a lot to interfere with uh, because we have election very, uh, every, now, every now and then, unfortunately. But so this is, the, this is the nuisance value and the ability of Russia to harm our interests. And it's, it is significant, but when you look, when you take a closer look, uh, you see that the Russians are successful in the Middle East, mainly in failed states, in arenas, thrown, thrown apart arenas, where they can position themselves between the conflicting sides as a power brokers. And, and usually they align themselves, the Russians, with the negative, uh, with, with, the, with the radical elements in the region such as the Assad regime, the Iranian regime, and I mentioned the terror organization and other. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> uh, so they don't, in the end of the day, the Russia, the Russian, they don't have a, 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 a constructive vision for the Middle East. They are more opportunistic working with all sides uh, and they are not very trusted in the region. Uh, and, and they don't have the resources, even, even if they had the vision, uh, the, the constructive vision for the region, they don't have the resources to promote one. And so, so in the end of the day, they are not very trusted in the Middle East, uh, and especially uh, they are more successful in an, in, an, in, an, in an unstable environment and arenas such as uh, Syria and Libya. Uh, and they don't, uh, most, of the, uh, most of the Gulf Arab states uh, and the Sunni Arab states, they don't trust uh, the Russian. And if we compare it to the United States, uh, I think the, the United States has very tangible assets in the region comparing to Russia. And we, we, we discussed that in the report. First of all, they have a special relationship with Israel. They have strategic partners in the Gulf where they to which they guarantee, they guarantee the, the, the stability 
uh, of of the Gulf uh, the Gulf uh, Sunni states in the Gulf Sunni states, and they protect them against uh, Iranian intimidation and threats. Uh, they are the guarantors of the freedom of navigation in the in the straits. Uh, they have huge bases in the region, very significant military presence. Uh, they have uh, military cooperation with all sides. They sell most of the weapons to their partners in the region, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the Russian cannot match American, uh, American clout uh, in, the, in the Middle East. And even if we take the Levant, where the Russians are more active in Syria, et cetera, and the United States is, not, is less present in the Levant and much of American presence is in the Gulf, even in the Levant, it was constructive, constructive, uh, constructive processes were initiated and initiated and were successful by the by, by the United States. I'm talking about, for example, about the the, the, uh, the ability to 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 jumpstart a negotiation, unprecedented negotiation uh, negotiation talks. Uh, between Israel and Lebanon on, on the maritime on the maritime border. This is only the United States can promote such a could promote such a dialogue um, and negotiation. So and uh, and I will conclude uh, with with the remark that uh, the United States, in order to keep uh, pushing back again Russian uh, negative and malign influence in the region, the United States and the United States should stay dominant in the dominant in the Middle East should keep its presence in the Middle East. Uh, and and we, the, the Russian uh, vulnerabilities uh, in, the, in the region can be exploited in order to push or to pressure the Russian uh, to, 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 uh, to have a more positive and constructive policy in the region. And as you know, a very robust, a robust American presence and dominance uh, in the region is a vested Israeli uh, interest. Uh, I'll stop here. Rudy, thank you so much. Uh, we're now going to hear from another one of your colleagues, um, Ksenia Svetlova, who uh, is also working at, at the Institute for Policy and Strategy at Herzliya as a senior researcher. She was a Knesset member uh, from 2015 to 2019 and a member of the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committees, uh, uh, as well as a journalist covering Arab affairs before that. And so she brings a broad perspective to this conversation today. And Ksenia, we'll look forward to uh, hearing what you have to say to get us going this morning. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Susan. Uh, and uh, it's good uh, to hear everybody, to, good to see everybody as well. Um, I would like to start with a few remarks. Uh, first of all, to perhaps underline the internal situation in Russia and its relations uh, with international players uh, and, key and the key holders um, and its relation to what it does or what it wants to do in the Middle East. So, um, first of all, uh, when you ask the Russians uh, whether, you know, they are back to the Middle East, they will tell you that they never left because they actually see the Middle East as their backyard. Unlike the United States, that can at least theoretically consider the option of just, you know, branching out, leaving the Middle East, distancing itself from its many conflicts, Russia cannot afford to do such a thing. Russia is here, it's closer to the Middle East geographically, 
Uh, and some would say also ideologically. Yes, it's of course more closer to many, at least many of the uh, regimes that are operating in the Arab world. Um, so, but is it only the true love or, or fear for security failures, uh, fear of the radical Islam, for example, uh, that can uh, uh, travel from the Middle East uh, to, to Caucasus area? Uh, is it only that uh, that drives Russia today to the Middle East? Uh, I argue that it's actually the dire condition of the Russian economy and the heavy sanctions that it experiences on behalf of the United States and their European Union that actually are suffocating its economy. Russia is obliged to seek new markets uh, for its weapons. Russia has to do deals uh, with the various regimes in the Middle East and in Africa. We have to also put in mind, you know, that uh, Russia is today it's a uh, top uh, exporter of weapons uh, in the, the African continent, which is, of course is very important. Uh, and um, this is done. Uh, it, it, you know, uh, along, you know, with its desire always to be present to in the Middle East. But now I think it's even more important uh, because there is just no other outlets. There are no other markets and there are no other place where it can grow and try to exercise its influence. So in a way, uh, when you increase the sanctions against Russia and when you make them harsher, you also experience a Russian uh, attempt uh, to become more powerful, more influential, uh, and to enter more scenes uh, here in the region and also in, the, in, uh, uh, in its uh, own, own close uh, proximity in the post-Soviet republics uh, and in Africa. Okay, so this is first. Uh, second, what I'd like to say about Russian's influence. So yes, it is not the picture that Russia tries to drive uh, for itself, to drive, uh, to, to, to draw for itself. It's not the unmighty, the, it's not the mighty uh, empire that it used to be once, uh, that uh, can support regimes, that can uh, uh, operate behind the scenes, and uh, that is equal basically to the United States. It knows it very well, and it doesn't have the aspiration uh, to now to challenge uh, the United States in a way uh, that it will replace the American influence with the Russian one. But it does in, indeed, it, uh, it's, uh, um, it was able to master an ability to use the vacuum that is uh, present in some places in the Middle East or in Africa uh, in the most sophisticated way and sometimes to exploit the not 100% of it, but 200% of it for its benefit. And this is exactly what we've seen in Syria. Uh, I, of course, agree with my colleague Udi uh, that mentioned that uh, you know, Russia cannot offer much to the Arab states. And this is basically the problem, because uh, when you look at uh, countries such as Sudan, and now we uh, experience this huge drama uh, with a Russian port in Port Sudan uh, that uh, might never you know, come to life, although the agreement between Sudan government and between Russia was signed, and now Sudan is actually asking for Russia to fold the equipment and to uh, you know, uh, evacuate it back, back to Russia. So the, the poor countries understand well that they will not get this uh, economic assistance that they need. Uh, the uh, rich countries, such as the Arab Gulf countries, need the security and they need the insurance uh, that they will be protected in case if they will be attacked by either Iran or their other nemesis, Turkey. Russia cannot prom pro you know, uh, uh, pr promise them you know, either, of the, in, either of the one. Uh, nevertheless, I still believe, and this is my concluding remark, uh, that Russia is indeed a major power 
uh, that is here to stay uh, in the Middle East. Uh, it is about to use every single loophole that it can uh, in order to grow its influence because it will deal with actors that U.S. never will, such as Hezbollah in Lebanon. And Lebanon is actually a perfect example. Yes, U.S. can bring the actors, the uh, uh, Lebanese representatives and the Israeli representatives together and sit them at the same table. But the party that actually decides whether the Lebanese uh, counterparts will appear there is the Hezbollah. And Hezbollah right now uh, found a new friend, which is basically which is Moscow, which is Russia. Uh, so you have to consider this. You have to act smart. Uh, I think the importance of our report is by underlining the differences in approach to Russia between Israel and the United States, uh, because partners, strategic partners such as U.S. and Israel, have to stay on the same page, even if there are some differences that are expl explainable and understandable. We still have to be in the same page to work with each other in order to get the maximum results. Ksenia, thank you so much. I can't wait to uh, you know jump into a conversation around this. Uh, but of course, last and definitely not least, we need to hear from the report's author, uh, Michael Kimmage uh, of the Wilson Center, who is with us now and who uh, not only wrote this, uh, but has uh, been a professor of history and a chair of the department at the Catholic University of America and is also a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. Uh, Michael, I'm looking forward to uh, how you put this all together for us. Thank you so much, Susan. Uh, and of course, we're all the authors of the report, but um, uh, you know, I was the one who assembled uh, its pieces. So with that in mind, uh, let me make three points that will echo uh, much of what's already been said, but I'll try to make them in the sort of biggest picture fashion so uh, we can think uh, as broadly as possible about what the report uh, has to offer. The first point is going to be about the region. The second point will be about uh, U.S. policy, and the third point will be about uh, the U.S.-Israeli relationship and where work of the kind we've been doing for the last couple of years can uh, really, I think, make an important contribution. So as for the region, uh, I want to cite a phrase from the report. We used the phrase shades of great power competition. So we wrestled a lot with this in the conversations that we had in the drafting of this. Uh, you know, we uh, began the report uh, in the Trump era when great power competition was very explicitly the frame uh, for U.S. policy. And I think analytically, we found this idea both useful uh, and also an idea that has certain Limits. So it's useful in the sense that China, Russia, and the United States all approach the Middle East uh, as a very significant uh, strategic zone um, uh, with different intentions and different aspirations in mind. But the Middle East uh, is, uh, is very significant to these three uh, countries. And of course, these are the three countries that uh, we tend to think of when we think of, of great power competition. So we made a special effort in this report to bring China forward. Uh, it's not the fulcrum for the region by uh, by any means, but its economic statecraft is increasingly significant. And of course, the Russian-Chinese relationship is uh, is evolving. So, uh, you know, there's really work to be done there. And I think the report uh, makes a beginning to sort of frame uh, a discussion of Russia's role in the Middle East around this notion of great power competition. But it's also an idea when you look carefully at it that has its limits, uh, in part because each of these three great powers uh, is trying to limit its role in the Middle East. Uh, that's you know, obviously the case for the US, where these have been intense debates in domestic American politics about how much to be involved in Syria, Iraq, uh, and other countries. It's also true for Russia, which imposes quite a few limits on its military 
uh, involvement in the in the Middle East, and you see that China is in some respects a very hesitant uh, great power uh, in the region. So that's the opposite of the great game, where you're trying to just expand uh, as much as you can. Uh, there are quite a few limits, uh, and we explore the contours of those uh, in the uh, in the report. As for my second point about U.S. policy, uh, and you know this is one that we can delve into certainly in the discussion because there are a lot of nuances. Uh, I think that we do argue for a certain basic continuity of U.S. policy from the Obama through to the Biden administrations uh, as far as Russia is concerned. And here I think there are two key uh, elements. The first is that for these three administrations, Russia's presence in the Middle East has not been deemed immediately intolerable. It's not a cause for uh, direct confrontation between the United States uh, and uh, Russia. And this is for reasons that have already been uh, you know, sort of indicated in this morning's discussion. Uh, Russia doesn't trample on the fundamental interests of the United States so far. The relationship with Israel, the US economic concerns for the region, uh, and the US aspiration for uh, stability in the Middle East. Russia's a headache, and I'll get into that in a second, but it doesn't fundamentally um, uh, invalidate these uh, pursuits of the US. And as Udi mentioned, uh, Russia is really most present in the failed states uh, of the region. That's where its influence is most uh, detectable. Uh, and you know, that's an indication to a degree of where Russia's capacities lie and also where, uh, as Ksenia puts it, where there are loopholes uh, in the region. Uh, and you know, we could think of all the places where Russia uh, is not present, uh, and those are quite considerable uh, as well. As for the second part, the part of, of Russia being uh, a genuine problem. I just want to hit a few notes that haven't been hit already. One of the ways that Russia is a real problem for the U.S. in the region is what it does uh, to sort of regional powers. So Egypt and Turkey, and here you see echoes of the uh, of the Cold War again. Egypt and Turkey have a tendency to play both sides off of each other, which is to say Russia and the United States uh, in the region. And this is a great complicating factor for uh, American policy. And I think there are many other countries that sort of look on this many other countries in the Middle East that sort of look on this and see uh, potential. You play both countries, you play great, both great outside powers off of each other. There are lots of benefits that can be uh, gained and we write about that directly with Turkey. Here, of course, it's important to note that Turkey is a NATO ally of the United States. So this confusion that's really coming from uh, Turkey and Russia's uh, role in the Middle East has implications for transatlantic policy and for uh, for European security as well. So it's really quite uh, far ranging uh, and you know, I think a real, real difficulty for, uh, for the US. Uh, wanna uh, you know, sort of also repeat what uh, Jim Jeffrey said at the end of his comments. There are a lot of open strategic questions uh, and you know, the Biden administration will be confronted with a lot of difficult choices in terms of Russia's role uh, in the Middle East. So if it's not immediately intolerable, uh, it is a problem. Uh, and there's a lot that still has to be figured out uh, in terms of US policy, which takes me to my third and final point uh, about bureaucracy and infrastructure. On the one hand, you could say that the US and Israel have such a good bilateral relationship that you don't need think tanks uh, and reports to stimulate a conversation about Russia. But one thing that we found in the work that we've done over the past couple of years is that there are a lot of bureaucratic hurdles in both countries to sort of looking at the role of Russia uh, in the Middle East. In the US, for example, Russia falls within the European division uh, of the State Department. That naturally you know, sort of trains the focus of American diplomats and policymakers uh, on Russia's role uh, in Europe. It's a bit more difficult to 
you know, to begin the conversation about Russia and the Middle East for bureaucratic reasons. And I think that there are parallels to that uh, in Israel as well. So it's necessary to have this conversation. It's of great strategic significance to both countries. And I think there's, there still have to be ways and formats uh, figured out to make this conversation as sort of vibrant and ex as extensive as possible. So we've tried to do that in the report, but I think there's still a ways to go to really making sure that the U.S. and Israel has have as comprehensive uh, a conversation as possible about uh, about Russia. So we've gone half the way, uh, and there's still a bit of distance to travel in terms of making this conversation uh, as rich uh, and uh, as uh, uh, as sort of detailed as it must be. Well, thank you so much, Michael, and thank you to our listeners. We're going to jump into questions now uh, from me and also hopefully from you, the audience. So you can, uh, if you want to ask a question, submit it via email to Kenan at wilsoncenter.org, uh, via Twitter to at Kenan Institute, or on our Facebook page, which is where this event is now streaming live. Um, I'm just going to jump right in. I see that uh, Jim Jeffrey is with us uh, uh, in video form as well as audio form now. Uh, so I'm going to bring him back into the conversation. And I want to start with his, his experience in uh, the last U.S. administration dealing with the Syria issue. I found it interesting that the report says uh, judges that Russia's intervention in Syria was a strategic success. And I'm curious if you if you agree with that. And also, just what do you think Putin's goal was in Syria, uh, and um, you know, how do you judge that uh, it'll be moving forward? Is it confined uh, in terms of the Russian goal in the region, or what do you get from the Syria experience that can help inform this broader conversation? Yeah. Thank you, Susan. Um, I agree it was a strategic success for his initial goals, which was to preserve a platform in the region, including a military base and an ally, a source of uh, uh, sales of weapons, uh, and thus a role, however minor, in the region. But uh, there's a German expression that one's appetite grows uh, with the snacking, uh, and I won't try to do that in German, but uh, you get the point. Putin changed his goals when he saw the situation in both the Obama and the Trump administrations. Without getting into the details, both of these administrations, arguably to some degree the Bush administration where I worked in the White House, and I fear I'm beginning to sense in the Biden administration, all in different ways, are confused about everything in the Middle East. They're confused about whether Iran is an ally or a potential you know, best boy or girlfriend in the region. They're confused about our key allies, Turkey, uh, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, to some degree, given the Palestinian issue, Israel. They're confused about uh, the terrible mistakes we've made there, the Arab Spring, Libya, Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, they want to pivot away, but they just can't. We see the United States reacting very differently in a confused way, regardless of the administration, uh, in the Middle East, vis-a-vis -vis Europe and vis-a-vis -vis Asia. Even though the challenges are bigger there, the stakes are higher. Uh, but we more or less from administration to administration largely know what we want to do and it's fairly consistent. In the Middle East, we are always confused and in different ways from administration to administration. This gave Putin an opportunity 
he saw the way we effectlessly, uh, it, with different approaches from overthrowing Assad to just walking away from the place in the Obama administration. And then the Trump administration, two years of a continuation of the Obama uh, policy, then I thought we were trying to put together a coherent policy. And our main enemy was the president himself who kept on pulling our troops out. Uh, and then we had to keep on uh, turning ourselves into knots to get them back in, which occupied much of our time and attention. Uh, so in watching all of this, Putin decided that uh, the United States was not willing to, in a key central area of the region, maintain our traditional collective security goal. So there was a role for him because he and Russia talks to both the Iranians uh, and everybody else. Israel is the best example of this, but there are variants of this, particularly with Turkey, but also with uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and other countries, be it on weapon sales, be it on this idea of a Gulf region uh, collective uh, cooperation and security agreement that Lavrov is pushing and such. Uh, they are trying to uh, maneuver to ensure that people no longer see us as the 911. Now, the problem is Russia and Putin knows this. We've talked to Putin about this. He cannot be the 911 who replaces us. Iran, in its own way, actually has ambitions to do it. They won't succeed, but they certainly plan it. Putin's idea is there will be no 911. It will be a happy mess like the Balkans in the 19th century. And that is an environment, however messy, however dangerous that the Russians believe with some uh, logic, they can play in. They cannot play in a collective security system unless uh, we're willing to give them an equal role, which in Europe in the 1990s, we opted not to do and they have never gotten over that. Certainly in the Middle East where they have less clout, as we just heard, less uh, resources, they don't expect to be treated as an equal with us. So what they're trying in our system, so what they wanna do is to pull down our system. He hasn't succeeded yet though, that's the important thing. Uh, he, we have stymied him more or less in Syria. Syria is a mess. 30% of the country is not under Assad's control, including uh, uh, the oil fields and most of the good agricultural land. Half the population has fled Assad abroad or into areas he doesn't control. And the country is an economic disaster with Israeli planes all over the sky and American and Turkish troops on the ground. This is not a happy solution. It's not an advertisement for Russia's idea of collective security, but he's not giving up. He's hoping that this administration will either walk away or try something different. And we're still waiting to see what that policy will be vis-a-vis -vis Russia, vis-a-vis -vis Iran, and vis-a-vis -vis Syria. Well, thank you so much. Uh, by the way, uh, that expression about the appetite grows while eating is also actually a Russian expression. Uh, so it's perfectly apt, it seems to me, for this conversation. Uh, in terms of the question of uh, American confusion, I guess my, my I'd like to direct that also to our Israeli counterparts. And uh, Amos, maybe you can jump in here. Uh, what about Israel? Is Israel confused when it comes to Russia? Is Russia uh, a pragmatic partner uh, in the Middle East, or is it a problem? for Israel. The report highlights uh, this bit of a paradox, it seems to me, uh, in terms of Israeli engagement with it. How do you see uh, Russia? And is it sustainable uh, to both um, engage with Russia uh, when it comes to Syria and also see it as a problem in terms of your broader challenges with Iran? Thank you very much again. 
unlike the privilege of superpower like US to have confusing uh, policy, we don't have this option. We need clear policy. I would like to focus first on Iran. This is a main threat to Israel. If Iran gets nuclear, military nuclear option or weapon combined with this terrible uh, regime, it might create existential threat. This is the only threat I call existential threat, a combination between regimes that keeps preaching to exterminate Israel, they mean it, and they are doing their best to implement it in spite of all difficulties. So the regional threat, the main front today that we can, we need to, to act is Syria, so-called Syria. Syria is empty suit, it's not sovereign country. It was saved by the Russians. Now the Russians have taken two bases and have deployed S-400. We need the Russians to tolerate our operations allegedly against Iran. We must not allow them to build second front parallel to Lebanon, so-called. There is no Lebanon, it's Hezbollah Stan. Now we need to do it, we are doing it. Again, I'm not sure we are strategically successful because the Iranians keep doing it. Operationally, we do have many, many, many achievements, even yesterday. I mean, every day there is, a, there is some operation. Now, can you imagine that we need to face S-300 PMU-2 or even worse, the S-400? So unfortunately, because of the American confusion, we need to deal with the Russians directly. The Russians will never be our allies. We do have one major ally, United States of America. The United States of America is major pillar in our national security. For, because of that, we, can, we need to have transparent relationship with differences or without them based on deep uh, friendship. Now about Syria, unfortunately, since uh, President uh, Putin has decided to deploy his forces and to take the advantage of two bases for 100 years, 98 to be accurate, we need to find the way to gain their tolerance. Now, from time to time, we are hearing some criticism about it from the US, from others, but we don't have other option. We need the free hand there, otherwise we will be in trouble. Now, vis-a-vis -vis Iran, Iran is strategic ally of Russia, in spite of the fact that the Russians are not interested in powerful Iran in Syria. Some, in a way, it sounds contradictory, but it's not. I mean, the Russians are happily using Israel indirectly to weaken Iran in Syria, while the Russians are keeping the strategic alliance with Iran. Can we trust them about uh, nuclear, military nuclear option? No, we cannot. Can we trust them at all vis-a-vis -vis technology, share of technology? I'm against it totally. We cannot trust them. Technology must be used against us and against American interests. We need to be cautious. We are, we need clear. It sounds like contradictory, but the Russian policy is also contradictory vis-a-vis -vis the Kurds, vis-a-vis -vis Turkey, vis-a-vis -vis Israel in Libya, and so on, and so on, and so on. We need to be very clear. Now about the Arab world. It seems, as it has been mentioned before, that the Russians are not successful in the hardcore of the Arab world. They are successful, maybe, 
in the margins of the, the Arab Middle East. We need to do our best to enhance and to cement our security and defense and intelligence cooperation with Sunni Arab countries. I'm skeptical that we can develop normalization and that's a different topic, but we need to enhance. We are doing it, it's not easy. We need to do it under the flag of United States. Um, it's, I call it Pax Americana after the name of uh, Pax Romana, because I do believe that with the image and the auspice of United States, we can do it. The moment United States might diminish their presence, it will have impact on the overall relationship between us and the Sunni world. On one hand, I don't expect normalization beside Abraham Accords. On the other hand, I do expect enhancement and cementing our unique security defense cooperation because it's clandestine, it's top secret, and it, does, it lacks any public exposure. In this respect, I do think that even United States does not have clear policy, it has clear presence. We need to encourage United States to keep this presence in the Arab world. It's uh, indispensable and it's very important. Now, what the United States will do vis-a-vis -vis Iran and Iraq and the whole Iranian presence here, unfortunately, I, unfortunately, I say on behalf of Israel, if I may say, that uh, the confusing policy of US is very, very troubling because I'm very concerned about it. Okay, there will be agreement between Iran and US. What will be the outcome? What will be the, outcome, the impact on the Arab world? If Iran gets it, uh, or be successful to develop nuclear capability or to be able to prepare the infrastructure that will enable it to break out whenever they find it um, appropriate from their point of view. Here we need some clear policy. I do believe that we need, again, transparent and very frank dialogue, especially between the leaders of the United States and our Prime Minister and Mr. Biden, the President. Otherwise, we will find ourselves in trouble. Because unlike Obama, if our Prime Minister thinks he can repeat the mistakes vis-a-vis -vis Obama, I think he's wrong. And we need this transparency. Transparency does not mean there will be coordination, but it will be much better. For example, on the intelligence basis, we do see eye to eye. That's the diagnosis. About the policy, it, it depends. But we need some clear policy. I'm not sure we are included in the priorities of US today, that COVID-19, economy, China, and so on. But we need to keep our place because the stability of Arab states, most of them are stable with all the problems. Egypt, problematic, stable. Jordan, problematic, stable. Saudi Arabia, problematic, stable. We need to do it combined with the United States. We must not forget that Russia is not our friend and will never be. They are considering us as integral part of US uh, block or camp, whatever you call it. But we need to find a way to soften and to contain the damages that they might cause. And we do have the many examples that have been mentioned here by my colleagues. I don't want to repeat them. So that's the main challenge. We need clear policy that is implemented on current basis. And we cannot tolerate any confusing, and again, I'm not 
I'm not telling US what to do, but we need very clear policy. And uh, there are many challenges that are waiting for us and we can see them in the horizon. Thank you. So thank you so much. Uh, Michael, I want to return to you because this question of uh, what is a, an American policy uh, in the region going forward with the Biden administration, a key question obviously is to what extent uh, do you perceive there to be any uh, fissures in the relationship with Israel uh, given that uh, uh, their relationship with the Trump administration was so pronounced and for many Democrats uh, a real issue uh, of concern, especially on the question of the Iran deal, which uh, you know came very close to straining the relationship even before uh, Donald Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu forged such a, a close uh, relationship. How much does that hang over, do you think, uh, decisions that the new Biden administration will make when it comes to Israel and Russia's broader role in the Mideast? Let me, I don't know if I can comprehensively answer your question, Susan, but let me sort of stick with the insights of the report and sort of take them to uh, a, a kind of answer uh, to the question. Certainly a lot does hang over the U.S.-Israel relationship uh, at the moment, which goes back to the Obama era when, of course, Biden was vice president and differences in perception between the Democratic and Republican uh, parties. I think that is uh, built in. Uh, at the moment. Um, but I think that there's um, an interesting difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration uh, on Russia, which has implications for much of what we've been uh, discussing, which I think, uh, you know, sort of means that in, 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 uh, in Syria, um, uh, I think the Biden administration is going to be much more uh, attuned to the sort of Russian role there and much more eager uh, to sort of contain it as such than was the case during the, uh, the Trump administration. It's, it's clear, I mean, the drama of the Biden administration so far has not been US-Israel, it's been US-Russia. Uh, and as we said at the outset of the conversation, day by day, the relationship seems to be getting worse. I think that when you look at Syria and other places in the Middle East where Russia is present militarily is going to be an incentive for the US uh, to stay uh, and not to draw down its military presence, which I think will be uh, a decision, if that's the one that's made, that will be welcomed by uh, welcomed by by Israel. This goes back to a, an insight in the report that's a kind of irony of great power politics, uh, which is that there is um, a drive in the U.S. to minimize its military presence in the Middle East, and has been uh, that's been the case for several years. Uh, but Russia's involvement has become an incentive for the U.S. either to stay or to expand its presence. So that's a uh, you know, sort of a comedy of Russia's great power politics that it wishes to displace the role of the U.S., but by moving in itself to the region, it sort of created a uh, an incentive for the U.S. Uh, for the U.S. to stay. So, um, you know, how the Biden administration works out its bilateral issues with Israel is is uh, is anybody's guess, but I suspect that uh, the tensions between the U.S. Uh, and Russia will uh, help to resolve some of the uh, differences between the U.S. Uh, in Israel, but uh, you know, maybe the final point to make for the for the Biden administration uh, is that the Middle East doesn't seem to be anywhere near the priority that Europe uh, and Asia are, uh, and that will also be interesting. So maybe it will be a question of how much attention this gets uh, in the White House, and not just what the policy uh, what the policy agendas are. So Udia and Kistenia, I want to bring you both in uh, for this next sort of conversation, which is around, first of all, Udi, to you, 
What do you think are actions that concern you or scenarios that concern you when it comes to Russia's dealings with Iran? Uh, what would uh, you know really raise alarm bells in Israel and for the United States? Uh, I know there's the prospect of more advanced weapon sales, for example. Um, tell us a little bit about the scenarios that, that you're concerned with vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Iran. And then Ksenia, to you, I would ask you to broaden that up a little bit uh, and to say, what are other actions or scenarios that you're looking with uh, uh, as Russia seeks to enhance its role in the region, uh, whether it's uh, deepening its military relationship with Egypt, for example, or you know, just get, walk us through some of the scenarios that uh, would concern you when it comes to kind of a next uh, uh, stage uh, and a next set of actions, possible actions for Russia. But Udi, why don't you uh, start with Russia and Iran? I'm sorry, maybe, maybe thank you, Susan. Maybe to begin with, um, to understand a little better the, the relationship between Russia and Iran, because it seems like uh, they are in some sort of a competition in Syria, etc. Um, from a Russian point of view, the relationship with Iran are strategic, and they go much beyond Syria. Even though Syria is the, is the real-time and concrete arena where they engage each other and they, they, a mutual presence, cohabitation in Syria, the relationship are going, they are much broader from a Russian point of view, and I'll explain. The Russians, like, like, like was said in the report and in this discussion, they are looking to enhance their, uh, their influence all across the Middle East. They are not really, uh, they cannot, like I said earlier, they cannot really even begin to compete with the United States when it comes to the Gulf. They are not there. The United States is, is, uh, is big time in the Gulf. And, uh, and, and I think uh, uh, the relationship with Iran is, is gives, the, the, gives Russia a leverage vis-a-vis -vis the Gulf states on the one hand and vis-a-vis -vis the, vis -vis, uh, the, the international community and the United States on the other hand. Uh, and this leverage uh, allows them uh, to extend their, uh, their influence uh, not only in the Gulf, uh, but also in other parts of the Middle East. Um, so this is one. Second, uh, when, when it comes to concrete scenarios, uh, I think, uh, first of all, what's going on right now in Vienna, uh, I think the Russians are supporting uh, the, the Iranian positions in this bargaining and in, the, in these negotiations. Uh, and in the end of the day, the Russians are supporting returning to a J, JCPOA minus and a, a sanction relief plus. Uh, and and so, so they are really uh, strengthening the hand of the Iranians in these negotiations. And they are also weakening uh, uh, while supporting the Iranian positions, they are weakening the ability of the IAEA, the International Agency, a nuclear agency to, to, to control and supervise and monitor what's going on inside Iran. Um, now, the, the, they are, the Russians are willing to ignore actions, uh, Iranian actions, suspected actions, ex, uh, past actions that are related to uh, nuclear weapons uh, capabilities and uh, R&D and suspected sites that were dealing with such, uh, with such components. 
uh, they are willing to ignore it. And in June, to, in, in June 2020, the Russians even voted in the IAEA board in, in, in Vienna. They, uh, they are uh, voted against, uh, against a resolution that was calling for the Iranians to cooperate and give access to the IA monitors, uh, inspectors. And uh, so they are really damaging uh, the ability to put some pressure on Iran when it comes to their nuclear uh, activities. Uh, the, the, uh, and the issue of weapon systems was, was mentioned. Uh, of course, the Russians were very adamant and very active uh, in pushing forward for the for the removal of the uh, UN arms embargo against Iran, and so so uh, uh, arm, advanced arms sales to Iran is always on the table. Uh, and if they sell S four hundred to the Iranians at some point, uh, this could uh, uh, this could increase the level of confidence of the Iranians to move forward with what they are doing in the nuclear file because in the nuclear field, because they might feel more immune to external threat when they have this kind of system. Same goes if, if, if the Yahon system, the, uh, the Yahon missile, calls to sea missile, uh, the Yahon, which has a very long range, and, ve and uh, it's an accurate missile, if they give it to the Iranians, if they sell it to the Iranians, uh, they can use it against Israel. And as you know, recently the maritime arena uh, was getting uh, warmer and hotter between Iran and this this uh, uh, this war uh, gray zone war in in the seas has been intensified between Israel and the and the and the Iranians. And the Iranians can use Russian capabilities uh, that can be very damaging. And last but not least is, is of course, Syria. Uh, it was mentioned here, I don't want to repeat, but one has to understand the, the Iranian, what they are trying to do. Israel is facing today one big, uh, the most severe conventional threat is the threat stemming from Lebanon that was built by Iran. They are trying to replicate this war machine that they, has, that they have built uh, in, uh, in Lebanon. They're trying to replicate it to Syria. And, uh, and the Russian, it was mentioned, they let us uh, degrade Iranian capabilities, but they are much more permissive and they are much more supporting for the Iranians uh, to entrench militarily, to push forward uh, military capabilities inside Syria, UAVs and missiles and rockets and, uh, and electronic warfare capabilities and you name it. They let them do that. Uh, and they even support them. Recently, it was published that uh, some uh, that uh, Russian uh, Russian war vessels are are accompanying Iranian vessels that are going inside Syria, allegedly uh, allegedly transferring oil. But probably in the in the in the vessels, you will find some other uh, weapons capabilities. And they are supporting and even protecting the Iranian ability to push forward. Uh, those uh, capabilities inside the Syrian arena. Uh, so uh, I think I would conclude here by saying that the relationship are strategic, and this is why it's going to be very difficult to drive, an, to drive a wedge between uh, Russia and Iran. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't need to continue uh, and, uh, and 
in, invest some effort to do that, but it's not going to be easy because it's strategic. I'll, I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you, Udi. Uh, Ksenia, I want to bring you in to this question of Russia's engagement with other countries in the region and what are the scenarios that concern you the most around that? What are, what are actions that we could see them take in the next few years that they have so far not done? Uh, and how would that challenge our thinking uh, and Israel's thinking around Russia's presence in the region? Meantime, I, for our listeners, this is your last chance to get some questions in, uh, and you can do it on Facebook or Twitter or even by email to kenan at wilsoncenter.org. But Ksenia, why don't you uh, take us around a little bit Russia's other potential actions in the region? Thank you. Thank you, Susan. So um, I would focus on three scenarios in three countries. Uh, the first, it's unavoidable, it's of course Syria, uh, and uh, Israel understands well that there will be some point that uh, we can get there soon or we can get there later, but we will get there eventually, when there will be some kind of restrictions on Israeli operations in Syrian skies. And this is of course a grand damage uh, to any Israeli strategic planning, uh, because uh, this is basically the only way uh, that uh, in which Israel can curb uh, the spread of uh, Iranian hegemony uh, and the Iranian influence uh, close to its borders uh, or even not close to its borders, some other strategical places uh, such as Deir for example, where the attacks also happened. Uh, and uh, it will be not done for the sake of the Iranians. I do not think that the Russians have any mercy towards this Iranian or pro-Iranian militia members that are dying in these attacks, uh, but rather to serve the Russian uh, interests. If they will believe that it serves the Russian interest, then uh, the you know, outcome can be that uh, there will be some kind of restrictions on operations. It doesn't happen for now. I think for now uh, it exactly serves the uh, Russian interest of having good relations with both parts and let them quarrel among them you know, with uh, uh, Russia's uh, kind uh, supervision. Uh, so this is first. Second uh, arena that we need to be extremely careful with and uh, you know, watch the developments there is, of course, Iraq. Uh, so Iraq uh, was not, I think, mentioned uh, so much until now, uh, but uh, the developments there are you know, very worrisome because we see both the uh, strong militias, pro-Iranian militias, that have no intention uh, to uh, abide uh, the prime minister Academy uh, has, uh, you know, requests and to, you know, succumb to his will. Uh, you know, there is no plans of this kind, and uh, I think we will soon see him go before any of the Iranian militias that are operating right now in Iraq uh, will uh, uh, work with him and, uh, you know, do what uh, he, uh, he requests. So these militias have their separate relations uh, with the Russian Federation. Uh, they often go, for example, a cyber hack. Uh, for example, they sent multiple times, they sent their missions and delegations to Moscow. They also negotiating uh, a purchasing strategic weapons. Uh, and uh, in case of this scenario taking place, uh, Israel would have to deal with another scene, uh, with another front, which is of course more remote from its borders. It's not like Syrian one. But still, Israel is worried about it. And we've seen also, oh, so it was reported in the foreign press, some Israeli operations also on Iraqi ground. 
because uh, the you know missiles uh, they do not know uh, any uh, you know there is no concept of borders when you talk about uh, missiles. So if these missiles will be stationed in Iraq and they will be directed and uh, uh, at Russia at uh, Israel, uh, so then Israel will have to deal with it as well. So we are talking about uh, multiple front situation in which we have Lebanon, we have Syria, and we also have Iraq uh, as a serious pain, uh, because as uh, was mentioned earlier by my colleagues, uh, Iraq is uh, a failed state or a state that is about to become a failed state. And this is a scene in which Russia feels extremely comfortable uh, and uh, by working with the pro-Iranian militias, it actually achieves three goals. Uh, it supports its own presence and dominance in Iraqi politics. Uh, it works against uh, the Russian, the American interests in Iraq. Uh, and uh, it also cooperates with Iran, uh, which stays, uh, you know, despite the disagreements, despite the conflicts that Russia and Iran has in other uh, uh, geographical areas in the world, it still is an uh, important strategic partner, you know, for Moscow. And the third country, which I'll, uh, I have to mention, of course, is Egypt. Uh, you asked about uh, the strategic uh, weapons being uh, sold to uh, Egypt. Well, not so fast, not so fast, because we see what is going on uh, with the shipment of the SU-35 that were promised uh, to Egypt a few years ago. Uh, Russians uh, said that there is already a written agreement and they published in their media uh, that these planes are ready to be shipped, uh, to be sent to, to Egypt as soon as possible. Uh, until now, uh, you know, their whereabouts are unknown. So we understand that there is massive pressure on behalf of the US. And so it will be also in case of other strategic weapons uh, that uh, e Egypt will be interested to buy uh, from Russia, okay? So, but uh, Russia is working very consistently uh, and it has a plan. It plan this plan includes the creation of first uh, a nuclear reactor in Aldaba, which is a very important development because it basically it gives a start for nuclear competition here in the region. So yes, it's a nuclear, it's a civil nuclear reactor. It's not a military one, but uh, it already lays ground for some other development in case if Iran will go nuclear, we'll definitely see also uh, Egypt perhaps being helped, uh, perhaps also by Russia, uh, perhaps uh, with the combination with Saudi Arabia going on this direction. So basically, I I Russia is even putting real money uh, on this Aldaba project. Why? Uh, because it sees a strategic uh, to its own interest, to basically um, you know, uh, um, creating for itself another sphere of influence, another platform that can be used in case that they, they uh, will need it in the future. It's the largest Arabic country, it's an important country, it's both Arabic and it's also African country. So here it's uh, this importance. I believe that uh, uh, although Israel, of course, watching close, uh, you know, the perspective of uh, shipment of uh, some strategical weapons uh, from Russia to uh, Egypt, this is not a, a scenario that we will have to deal with in the close future. I'm, uh, you know, I'm saying close, I'm meaning next few months, uh, because everything is developing very quickly here in the region. But until uh, Egypt is dependent uh, of the United States, of its military aid, and nobody's in a hurry to substitute this aid, definitely not Russia, also not China, uh, we will see that uh, the US will exercise a, a degree of influence, it can be more or, or less, but for now it's keeping the Egyptians from uh, going for the direction of uh, 
uh, of acquiring Russian weapons. And of course, the Egyptian army, the largest Arab army here in the region, um, we now have, I think, the culmination of our relations uh, since the Camp David Accords. Uh, the relations between militaries are very close. The relations between societies do not exist. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, there can be theoretically always scenarios that we have to get ready for them. And one of them is, of course, uh, you know, that uh, Sinai will be uh, once again, uh, you know, a place where it can become the army theater. I will uh, conclude here. All right. Well, now that we've gotten everybody sufficiently worried, um, we are getting a few questions coming in from the audience. So I want to get to those before we end right at 11 uh, uh, Washington time. So, um, okay, Ambassador Jeffrey, here's a, here's a quick one for you and then one of my own to go with it. Uh, good question from uh, a listener. What are exactly, in your view, U.S. objectives in the region going forward, given the expectation of a reduced military footprint? Uh, and related to that, I just want to ask you, it seems like our default assumption in this conversation is that the conflict in Syria is just continuing. Am, am I correct that that is, that is the view at this point? Do you see any uh, near-term prospects for it to be ending? Um, we tried in the uh, Biden, rather the Obama administration to uh, propose a compromise solution to the Russians that would essentially keep an aside who behaved differently in power get, if not all Iranians out, at least they are threatening weapon systems out, the rockets, the missiles, the other things that Amos and uh, Udi mentioned, uh, and uh, allow us all to cooperate against uh, ISIS, which is still a threat, particularly in the Assad-controlled areas. Uh, the Russians didn't nibble because I think they believe that uh, there's a possibility for a total uh, uh, reintegration of Assad's Syria uh, in the Arab world and in the international community and a reconquista of the areas that he doesn't hold. Uh, the Russians are wrong, I think, in that, but they certainly were not tempted. That would be the solution. On the other hand, um, uh, this administration uh, is torn between the Biden administration, uh, simply keeping things going, which is always for Americans a messy solution, uh, or trying to find a way out. The problem is, as I said, there is little way out that I see other than acquiescing to Russia's view. Uh, we have a long-term messy strategy in Ukraine. What I'd recommend is to continue a somewhat similar strategy uh, towards uh, Russia and Iran and Syria. In terms of the overall uh, regional uh, uh, purpose of the United States, that's an excellent question because that's what we are questioning right now inside the administration, inside the United States. We don't really question it for Europe or for Asia for obvious reasons, unless we're gonna become isolationists. Uh, my first argument is that the United States, and this is so basic, I feel embarrassed citing it, but I feel I often do now, is running since the 1940s, a global collective security system that has been enormously successful despite Vietnam, despite Afghanistan uh, in preserving global peace, if not uh, individual wars in various areas, and promoting prosperity through the globalization that is attendant to this global security system. Uh, but this system by its nature is um, a global system. It's very hard to take an important region and the Middle East by everybody's uh, 
uh, view as an important region, if not as important as East Asia and Europe, and simply say, well, we're not going to contest that region. Uh, Russia, you can move in with 30 airplanes and 3,000 troops and run amok in the region. Iran, even though you're only a regional power uh, aligned against many uh, more powerful region, or at least the powerful regional powers, you can run amok as well, and we're not going to stop it because we don't have key interests there. Leaving aside that we do, if we don't import oil from the Middle East anymore, our allies and partners do and will for at least the next generation. If we're not worried about terrorism coming out of the Middle East, and we shouldn't uh, be so sure that we're not, uh, certainly our European allies who experienced a huge wave of it in 2015 and 2016 are. If we're not worried about uh, the huge refugee crisis that Syria has engendered that all but destabilized Germany and some other European NATO allies, uh, we should. So the Middle East is very important to us. And I think that uh, we have to play a role there. The good news is we don't need to do it with hundreds of thousands of troops. We have, as Udi said, a tremendous military infrastructure. Some of that may go, much of it will stay, but more importantly, we have an alliance system that if it has leadership and if it has unity, is quite effective in uh, complementing our efforts and taking the lead in very serious. Again, Turkey and Israel, while they have different goals, together are exercising most of the military pressure on Assad, the Iranians and the Russians in Syria. That's an example of what you can do. Thank you. All right, we have time probably for uh, one or two more. Uh, and uh, Amos, uh, this is for you. Um, do you, from one of the listeners, do you expect a new Israeli government that comes to power to maintain the same sort of close ties with Russia as Netanyahu did? Uh, and I believe there have been three Putin visits uh, to Israel in the course of his tenure. About the government, uh, it's not included in my qualifications to foresee whether there will be government. About policy, I can share with you that uh, what we need, again, is clear policy that is focusing on Iran. And we need to, to use the advantages that have been mentioned by Jeffrey <coughs> as challenges. Um, Alliance with Sunni world means, let's take Jordan, for example, that we are not suffering from terror from Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. That saves Israel because of this very, very excellent relationship. We do have security relationship with Jordan. As long as they exist, we are preventing terrible, bloody uh, acts of terror from this sensitive front. We need to, to continue. We need to have clear policy. Fortunately, it derives from our interests, so I, I cannot foresee any government changing it about other Arab countries I've just mentioned. Uh, Russians, uh, I think their influence in Syria will continue. I cannot foresee United States have or will create real leverage on the Russians to diminish, to change their presence. So we need, it's very fragile what I'm sharing with you uh, to continue their tolerance. I don't call it more than that because it's not. It's like coordination or even not coordination because we are not, we cannot share with them. We cannot share with them early warning about our operations. We can share with them patterns or rules of the game. And that's what we need to do in order to prevent the Iranian uh, presence. If Iran gets stronger, and here I get to Russia, because the Russians are real strategic allies of Iran. 
if they get more power vis-a-vis -vis, uh, growing weakness of the Sunni Arab world like Saudi Arabia, the impact will be dramatic eventually on the issues that have been just mentioned uh, by Jeffrey about uh, refugees, terror, and so on. We need to keep the Middle East very stable, and we need to have free hand vis-a-vis -vis Iran. If the diplomatic channel succeeds, okay, we need to take advantage of this achievement if it will happen, if it happens, in order to develop military option. Uh, we need to be prepared to prevent at any cost, like we have done previously, vis-a-vis -vis Saddam Hussein, vis-a-vis -vis Bashar Assad with his nuclear, uh, the military nuclear they have just, or they have developed. We need to be prepared. We must, for the existence of Israel, to prevent any nuclear weapon in the hands of tyrannies, uh, from the Saddam type or model or Iran model or Syria model. That's what we need to do. That's the main message because I don't have uh, much time to uh, share with you uh, because that's a timetable. I would like to thank you all of you for this fantastic dialogue that will continue in our report and next events in the future. Thank you so much. And I'm actually going to give a final word here to uh, Matt Rajansky, who's our host at the Kennan Institute, also a participant in this conversation. We haven't brought him in yet today. Matt, today in Washington, uh, we hear uh, maybe in the last few years, we heard Russia, 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 but China, China, China uh, has been a lot of the conversation around the Biden administration's foreign uh, policy, but not so much when it comes to China and Russia's uh, cooperation, in particular in the Middle East. I, and I'm curious just how you would frame that up. Uh, you know, how much do you think the new Biden administration uh, cares about the challenge from Russia versus the overarching threat that they have uh, articulated uh, in their view that that needs to be the organizing principle of U.S. foreign policy around uh, uh, the resurgence and the rise of China as as a competitor. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity, Susan, and thank you so much for guiding this event, despite the inevitable technical challenges of the Zoom pandemic era. Um, not sure which one characterizes it more, Zoom or the pandemic, but here we are. Um, look, I think if you if you listen to what administration officials have been saying, if you read the interim uh, national security strategic guidance, you get a pretty clear picture of kind of where traditional nation state adversaries, competitors, challengers stack up in terms of the strategic thinking of the administration. Now, China is far and away uh, seen as the major competitor in terms of capability, um, but even arguably in terms of intentions. And I think that that has uh, sort of a, a, a plus side, uh, that is to say an opportunity side and a minus side, which is the challenge side. And I think you see both dimensions of that in the way that the United States has got to deal with Russia you know, be it on European security or be it on Middle East issues like Syria, as we've been discussing. Um, and that is, you know, and I think our Israeli colleagues have uh, throughout this, this project offered very valuable insight to us in terms of kind of not approaching the Russian challenge or opportunity with too many preconceptions, uh, but rather instead objectively assessing, you know, where it is Russia has interests and where it is Russia has capabilities. And the Middle East is a very good example of that um, for the reason that Russia tends to be non-ideological in its approach to the Middle East. And so I think you know the takeaway for the United States when you factor in the need to have bandwidth to deal with the China challenge, um, the potential opportunity 
of, as, as administration officials have suggested, you know, finding ways to split Russia and China as difficult as that challenge may be, or at least pathways where Russia may find some appeal in pragmatic engagement. Um, you know, and President Biden himself has talked about the need to do that kind of engagement. The Middle East should be no exception, uh, but there isn't a clear and obvious path forward. It's not going to be either the black of kind of, you know, renewed superpower competition over this region, uh, nor is it going to be the white of kind of happy partnership, you know, under a UN umbrella and moving forward to, to peace and prosperity for everyone. So it's the difficulty of working through that, that balance and what it means in a world where there is, in fact, a kind of much larger uh, geostrategic uh, uh, difficulty on the horizon, as well as all of the cross-cutting uh, transnational problems that you see the administration placing very high on the agenda, like climate uh, trafficking, proliferation, and of course, pandemics and, and the risk of future pandemics. So I realize it's, it's, it's a broad answer, but it's still early days in terms of uh, what we're hearing from the administration. Um, but I think we're going to see, you know, movement in the future that looks in a lot of ways uh, like the thinking that Michael so ably um, uh, reported on in this document that's based on the insights from this working group. So I, I find it to be very timely and relevant, you know, even though we started it before the pandemic, uh, had been partially derailed by it and then continued it in this virtual format. And I'm very grateful uh, to everyone for their inputs and their time today and to you especially, Susan, for leading the conversation. All right, well, thank you. What a great note to end it on. And I wanna thank everybody for uh, their thoughts this morning and uh, I hope you have a great day. And again, if you haven't read the report, uh, please do so at the Kennan Institute's website. Thanks again, everyone.